podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. This is Claudia's O'Reilly Auto Parts story. I had just moved to a new city and barely even knew where the grocery store was yet. When my car wouldn't start one morning, I didn't know who to ask about local shops. But I remembered a name from back home, O'Reilly Auto Parts. I called and they pointed me to a great mechanic just down the street. Now, I feel a little more at home. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. We are back on Brew of the Blue. Everybody's doing well, staying safe, and I'm delighted to say joining me this Thursday for this edition is Dave Prentice, Liverpool Echo Sports Editor. A legend in this part of the world, David, and I think it'd be, be, be absolutely fair to say. Uh, how are you doing, mate? Uh, very, very well. Much like I can live up to that kind of billing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's probably absolutely fair enough, I'd say, in, in that regard. Well, but, I'll um, take you on yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've got to be nice. Got to be nice to everyone who comes on here, gets up at this time, and so to speak to me, Dave. But no, in um, in all seriousness, how are you, how are you doing, mate? How are you how are you finding things at the moment? All right. I mean, like everybody, I think uh, frustrated. Um, you know, trying to do the job as best we can in very very difficult circumstances. But you know, there are there are plus points. You know, obviously, you get to spend a lot more time at home uh, with my wife and kids. We're actually having proper meal times every single evening <laughs> now. You know, which uh, we've not done for a long time, which is great. Um, and other little positive spin-offs, I mean, the start of the year, um, an idea I've had for a long, long time about, uh, about doing a book, about, you know, some of my experiences, you know, sort of working in journalism for a time where journalism has changed quite dramatically, uh, you know, so not just Merseyside, but, you know, the world at large. And um, started working on this book, uh, had um, the guys at our place, uh, as was Trinity Sports Media, obviously the publishing arm of The Echo, were very, very enthusiastic about it and encouraged me to do a version. I think initially it was going to be, you know, sort of basically, you know, Everson, Liverpool and Tramway, because I've covered all three yeah. during my time, but they weren't interested in that. They actually wanted an Everson one, um, you know, because obviously that's what I'm more closely, you know, sort of aligned to. Obviously I am a blue, which is why I'm on this. Um, <laughs> and I think they saw it as being something similar to Brian Reed's, you know, 43 years with the same bird. Um, and so obviously that was music to my ears, you know, wanting to do something just about Everson, you know, alone. So I've been getting really stuck into that. I think they wanted about 80,000 words, uh, ideally by the end of July. Uh, I think I'm 75,000 already. I'm wow. flying. So, you know, the, you know, the time, the extra time I've had on my hands has been quite beneficial uh, in some respects. So, yeah, I've enjoyed that as well. Um, so just trying to do what I can. And long walks, of course. Yeah. You know, so going out for a, I live in quite a nice part of the world. So, you know, so fortunate enough to be able to go for a walk down the beach. So I haven't bumped into Carlo yet, though. <laughs> I think one day maybe. Yeah, I've spoken to a few people who live down that end who who've been sort of walking up and down Crosby Beach just trying to catch a glimpse of him and see him counting yeah. the Iron Man and that sort of thing, but, yeah. but no sign as of yet. But that, that's that's great news on, on the book, and you know it's it's yeah. something I've always you know whenever we've spoken and you know you know read your pieces for the Echo, I've always thought about why haven't you, you gone down that route? I mean, is, is it a bit an idea that's been rattling around in your head for a while? Though? Long, long time. Yeah, I mean, um, a long long time ago, I did a. It was called 10-Year Blues, and to be honest, it was a bit rubbish. It was just a collection of reports that I'd you know, put in the echo. And um, I always remember um, a review from the When Skies Are Grey. One of the guys said, yeah, it's all right, but you know, we actually want the stories behind the stories. You know, yeah. We want to know how you came across this interview or the relationships with managers and players. And so it made sense. You know, that is far more interesting. And whenever I'm talking at work, you know, I'm one of the, uh, the, the elder members of the sports desk now. So whenever I start telling stories, they all love the stories. And like, oh, you've got to put this in a book. You've got to put it in a book. 
So I started doing it a long, long time ago. And as ever, time was always the constraint. I just thought I'll never really get around to doing it. I mean, I spoke to Gavin, Gavin Buckland, about his wonderful book he did about yeah. Everton in the 60s. I think it took him seven years to do. And I thought, oh, wow, you know, it's good. I can't really commit to something like that. But start of the year, I just thought, right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I started doing it. And I put together little cameos and little anecdotes uh, going back several years. So I had probably about 10,000 words already in anecdotal yeah. form already together. So I started really putting my mind to it and really getting stuck into it at the start of the year. And because it's a project I'm quite passionate about, it's flown. You know, so it's not really a, a trial. It's something I'm actually enjoying doing. So yeah, it's been flying. So, you know, fingers crossed, uh, July 31st, I'll get the completed manuscript and we'll start putting it together. And it could be in the market in time for Christmas when hopefully we'll all be out of this nonsense and able to go to shops and buy the thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to that already. It sounds, it sounds brilliant. And I think the, the stories behind the stories, Angle, you mentioned there, it's, it's something that I love it when we get to speak and you come on our shows because some of the stories, <laughs> you know, in particular about the, the 94, 95 season on that yeah. special we did with, with you and Gav recently and, and yeah. Joe Royal, of course, was, was fantastic. And, I suppose if you're looking at the industry now, and I'm sure, I imagine this will be something you'd be looking at, you know, in the book. It's those sorts of things and those sorts of anecdotes are getting less and less, aren't they? Because as, yeah. as you probably know better than anyone, that distance between journalists and, you know, the fans and the players is getting wider and wider. And you're not going to have things where you go on pre-season towards, you're not going to have that sort of interaction yeah. with the players on a day-to-day basis. So it's, it's, it's great that you'd be able to chronicle that all now. Totally. I mean, I'm finding that even now. I mean, I'm, I'm up to the, the, the beginning of the Cumin era and the stories dry up because, you know, so football now is, or football journalism is conducted in a very controlled environment. I mean, uh, I understand why, you know, when I first started doing the job, I was invited down to as Belfield uh, once a day, if not twice a day. I'd sit down and have a conversation with the manager. I'd have like 10 or 15 minutes with him. I'd have a cup of tea, a bit of toast. And as a result, you build a relationship with that manager and you can understand what he's trying to achieve at the football club. And in some respects, you become friends. Um, I had a number of players that lived quite close to me who became personal friends and still are now. So, you know, he ended up like going out socially with them. And a, a bizarre situation when um, Peter Johnson was the chairman at the time. And I remember the very first ground move Pole back in well, 94, I think it was. Mm. And myself and Paul Joyce had to go over uh, to Johnson's house over in the rural to get the results of this ground pole move. And um, a woman answered the door, and I, I just presumed she was Johnson's home help. You know, she, she had a pee yeah. on, and you know, she was looked like she'd been doing a little bit of a, you know, sort of cleaning or something. Anyway, I invited us into the kitchen, you know, gave me a, a glass of wine, and kept on looking at me really oddly, you know, during the course of the interview. And eventually she goes, David Prentice, isn't it? You know, the penny dropped. Lorraine Rogers was an old school friend of mine oh, for yeah. a long, long time. Anyway, Johnson was appalled that, you know, so I, I knew, you know, so this girl who was my age, you know, so he was going out with. So that created a, a strange dynamic, you know, <laughs> my relationship with, you know, so the, the chairman at the time and his partner. And, you know, ultimately ended up on me spending a night on his yacht in the bloody south of France when I was uh, I was writing some quite uh, quite cruel, critical things about him, which were thoroughly justified, by the way. Yeah. And um, and she tried to bury the hatchet by inviting me, join the World Cup in '98, you know, so yacht. So you know, that's all in there. So yeah, lots and lots of mad little anecdotes. But as you get closer to the modern era, they do tend to dry up a little bit because the change for me affected, apart from my own career, you know. So obviously, I became deputy sports editor, then sports editor. So involved far more in the admin side of things than I would be actually writing as I used to. Um, but football clubs themselves, when Everton moved to Finch Farm, I think they saw that as an opportunity to 
pull the drawbridge back up a little bit, you know, maybe not give us quite the same kind of access that we'd had previously. And they weren't doing it for, you know, so any ulterior motives. They're just the demands on managers, you know, time nowadays are intense. Yeah. So it is a very controlled environment. And nowadays, and, you know, so the Echo, along with all the other members of staff, get the opportunity to go and see the manager in a very controlled, you know, sort of press conference environment day before a football game. And uh, we've got to try far harder to actually build the relationships that I was probably, you know, so sort of granted much more easily when I was doing the job. Phil Kirkbride's doing a great job doing it. I mean, uh, he's got very good contacts with Farhad Mashiri, you know, so the manager he's working on at the moment, but he's only new, you know, so it'll yeah. come. Marcel Brands, you know, so, but he's had to work a lot harder on it than maybe I did. You know, but as a result, <laughs> as a result, you know, so I did get a lot of very, very entertaining stories out of the, uh, out of the job, which, you know, hopefully people enjoy reading. Yeah, and I suppose it's it's one of them, isn't it? Where it's just the very nature of football in our way. You look at Everton in recent years, the turnaround in personnel the football club has been, you know, in oh, terms wow. of the manager yeah. and the players, and you know, even on the board and stuff like that. It's been just a you know a revolving door, hasn't it? So I imagine for people like you said, like Phil and, and Adam, who are at the Echo now for you guys, it, it must be hard for them to, to get those regular contacts because they could be in and out the door yeah. straight away. Oh, it's impossible. I mean, uh, Ronald Koeman, I don't think anybody had his number. Uh, you know, he just, he, he was a very, very, should we say, aloof individual anyway, yeah. who was, uh, you know, so not wanting to build any relationships with the media. And he, he mistrusted us, basically. But, you know, I don't think anybody actually enjoyed having his you know, private phone number. Again, I was quite fortunate when I started. There'd been like a precedent set in place by my predecessor, Ken Rogers, who'd, uh, who was very close to Howard Kendall. And would go down every single day. And uh, subsequent managers were just happy to continue with that arrangement. Um, I took over in '93 when Howard was on his second spell, and obviously he was more than happy to, you know, sort of look after the Echo. And then obviously when he went, Mike Walker came in, and uh, yeah, an interesting period in the club's history. But he was happy to continue with that arrangement. And then likewise, Joe, likewise Walter, David Moyes. David gets this impression of a reputation. I think it's a bit unfair of being quite a, a dour, you know, sort of cool individual, and. Okay, it's not exactly the life and soul of a party as, you know, so Howard could be or Joe could be, uh, but it was a very, very straight dealing individual. And I've always said that he was the most honest man I ever dealt with as a manager, just absolutely straight as a die. Uh, would always tell you everything utterly honestly. And the fact that he was there for so long as well, you know, so helped a great deal. So, you know, a fair bit of time for David as well. So, yeah, fortunate in many respects. But once he left, that was it then. It did. It became like, you know, mayhem. I mean, Roberto got his just two or three years, and Roberto was a. A strange character. I mean, you get this very out, outwardly, apparently very engaging and enthusiastic personality. But there was a, a slightly darker side to Roberto, as a lot of people didn't often see. Mm. And then when he went, it was like, you know, like you say, it was uh, you know, the roller coaster ride then, you know, sort of new manager every 12 months, which makes it very, very difficult indeed to get to know A, what a manager's tried to do, and B, get to know him particularly well at all. Fortunately, there's a bit more stability now, you know, certainly yeah. in the higher echelons of the club. I mean, um, You've got, you know, sort of a hierarchy that appears to be in place you know, for quite some time to come. And hopefully that will extend to the manager as well, because I think you know, we all agree that, you know, so Carlo is absolutely the right man for the job. And we hope that he's there for a long, long time to come. Yeah, I bet your daily briefing with Carlo would be nice, wouldn't it? It'd be People wonderful, talk yeah. to every day. It was funny, actually, because the, the first time I got to meet him... Um, Bill had invited us into the, uh, into the boardroom uh, for a game, uh, his first match. And, you know, so brought me over to say hello to him. And uh, I was trying to, like, score points as quickly as possible. So I referenced the fact that you made me a very, very happy man way back in 2007 
when I was in Athens and the sports writer <laughs> to, uh, to cover the Champions League final you know, against his Milan side. And he could see him looking at me thinking, sorry, what, what do you mean? I said, oh, well, you know, obviously I work for the Liverpool Echo, but you know, I've been in Evertonian all my life and I was there doing a professional job, but secretly rather hoping that you know, so you, your team would win that night. <laughs> so uh, we've met him a few times since and yeah, he comes across great. You know, so the, the players really appreciate him. Everybody at the club loves him. It's just unfortunate that you know everything that he's trying to do has been interrupted by this you know, so horrible business that's going on in the world. But, you know, so hopefully that'll be you know, so over sooner rather than later, and he can get on with the job properly. Yeah. Just, just finally on those those daily meetings you used to have with the manager. So, so quickly, when did that stop? Was it when Moyes came in? No, no. Uh, David was great. Um, yeah. to, it wasn't quite as embracing as some of the other managers have been. In the you know, I'd only get a cup of tea you know sort of once a week or twice a week and be invited up to his room because. He's very intense, David, and he always used to you know, turn up and straight into the job, straight into you know, what he wanted to do with that day. So I'd try and arrange it so I would get to Belfield before he arrived. You know, he normally got there about a quarter past, half past eight, uh, depending on how his commute came from Preston down the M6. So I'd be there waiting for him. And then uh, he'd always give you five or ten minutes just in the little entrance hall at Belfield alongside that uh, that radiator and the plaque that you know celebrates the opening of Belfield, yeah. which was fine. That, that was all I needed, just an opportunity to bounce a few questions off him. Uh, but no, he, he was very, very good in that respect. It changed, like I say, when Everton moved to Finch Farm. And um, I think they said then, look, you know, we need to change this a little bit. We can't have you down here every single day. And I'd moved across the Chief Sports Writing role then. I think it was mm. Scott McLeod and uh, Dominic King were, were taken over as the Everton writer. And they took the opportunity then to put, put us a little bit of a distance, maybe, you know, so not quite as much as some of the other newspapers, but, you know, so more so than we had been previously. And we had to accept that because, you know, unfortunately that was the, the nature of, you know, sort of journalism nowadays. So we had to do what we can to try and, you know, sort of, you know, get the stories that we could. And having said that, you know, David was always available, you know, so yeah. we had his number, we could ring him at any time. And like I said, he was always be 100% honest. So it wasn't so much an issue, really. It was when he went and Roberto came in and, you know, we had to try really hard then to try and you know, sort of embrace Roberto and you know, sort of get to know him. And, and we did, but like I say, could be an odd individual at times, Roberto. <laughs> you, never, yeah. you weren't quite sure that what you were getting told by Roberto was the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Yeah, I mean, we, we spoke to um, Leon Osman a couple of years ago and he sort of said the same sort of thing about Roberto. It was a case of he'd yeah. tell you in meetings yeah. and speak to you and say, you're a, you're a key part of my plans, you know, you're going to be playing and all this sort of stuff. And, and Ozzy was saying he was effectively in his last season and that, that wasn't the case. He's like, why? Yeah. Why, why are you saying that to me? But just, just on the, the chat you used to have with the manager, obviously that would have been, it was fantastic for you guys at the Echo and, and doing yeah. your report and stuff like that. Did you feel as though it was helpful for the managers as well, for you to sort of relay what, the, you know, what people are saying and stuff like that? And maybe that, I, I, that's, yeah. that's something now that could be, would be helpful to the, someone like Carl Angelotti in particular, who's new to the football club. But you've got yeah. that link between you know, the main local press and, and him and sort of you know, transmitting that information back to him. It, it could be a major asset. I've said this to, uh, to people at Everton many times. Uh, you know, it, it would be 100% because you know, apart from the access that we get and you know, sort of the quality of stories that we get, it allows you a very privileged insight into what's going on in the manager's mind. You know, you see him every day, therefore you get to know him and you hear about things that he's trying to implement and things that he's trying to do. And it's a difficult balancing act. You know, you've got to show a level of trust and, uh, you know, you'll, you'll hear things that, you know, you'll know he doesn't want publishing. And so you've got to try and respect that, you know, which I think we did. Um, but equally, you get, like I say, a little knowledge of what you know, kind of things he's trying to do at the football club. And it just means that you know, when you have a bad result, for instance, or a bad run, 
you treat it a little bit differently because you realize what the manager was trying to do, you know, so during that time, you can see things a little bit more clearly. And um, I'm thinking really, you know, so during the, uh, the, the Joe Royal era, when um, he had this incredible run where he started his Everton career, where an absolute miracle keeping Everton in the Premier League as it was. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, so winning the FA Cup. And I always remember a little anecdote with how we started, uh, myself and Joe. I mean, I was at home one night and uh, the phone goes at home. And uh, he goes, you know, so hello, pal. Just letting you know that, you know, we've sold David Burroughs uh, to West Ham, I think it was, one point, no, Coventry, sorry, 1.1 million. I thought, oh, right, okay. And I didn't know him. I just presumed that he'd run around all the media. So I turn up for work the next day, pick up the morning papers, absolutely nothing in any of the papers. So he'd like basically dropped an exclusive in the lap. So wrote the story, went down to see him. I said, oh, I really appreciate that. I thought you were ringing everybody. He goes, oh, no, son, I've got a catchphrase, support your local sheriff. <laughs> and, uh, so, wonderful. and so you know that was the start of you know start of a beautiful relationship you know it was you know so i love joe to this day and uh, yeah. you know so we, we got on very very well as a result of you know lots and lots of things came to the wedding you know so he's you know, a really really good guy so that when he had that you know so really sticky run at the start of uh 97th in january i was very supportive because i knew what he was trying to do i knew the injury problems that he had you know that he'd lost Andy hinchcliffe for a season he'd lost joe parkinson gave watson briefly he was trying, he had a very, very thin squad anyway, you know, which he'd inherited and he was still trying to build that up. And so I could see all this. I could see what he was trying to do. I could see, you know, the signings he was trying to bring in. And so that tempered what I was writing and I was very, very supportive as a result. And I still, I don't think that compromised me as a journalist uh, because I still genuinely believe that if Everton would have kept Joe, you know, so as manager, instead of this madness of mutually consenting him, the club would have been in a better place. We wouldn't have had that, you know, sort of ridiculous situation where Peter Johnson thought he was getting one manager and didn't, yeah. had to hold on for another, and then it ultimately ended up having to bring Howard back, you know, so for a third time. Um, so it was, it was a very, very curious time, but equally, I could see what Joe was trying to do, which was why I was supportive. And I think that bringing it right up to the modern day, I think that, you know, so if we were seeing the manager every single day, we would appreciate more, you know, so what he's trying to achieve and what he's doing. And the manager starts to trust you a little bit more as well and starts to, you know, sort of let you into his thinking and let you into his mindset. And so it tempers what you're writing, you know, so if you're going to be particularly critical of a particular player, maybe you wouldn't be because you realise, you know, so why he's been playing and why he's playing yeah. in the position that he is. Things like that, things that you probably wouldn't uh, relate to a wider audience because when we do see the manager now, you know, so we're down at Finch Farm, when you have all the press, all the national press of the uh, Sky TV, the various television stations, the radio stations, you know, it's basically everybody turning up in the same room. And the manager naturally is going to be a little bit more guarded, I think, than he would yeah. be in an environment where it's just one-to-one. -one. So, you know, I'll keep working on Everton. You know, <laughs> you never know, but maybe one day they'll, uh, they'll you know, sort of let us have something approaching, you know, so what we had back in the day. Yeah, and I suppose that's that's a really fascinating point about Joe and how, you know, you felt supportive of him, but you, you weren't compromised. And I suppose that's because you knew him and you knew what he was trying to do yeah. and, you, and you knew what he was like as a fella in, in that regard. And something we were speaking about on one of our shows last week in regards to um, the current manager and his staff. Um, obviously, the club put an interview up with David Angelotti yeah. um, last week, and it was really interesting. He said a lot of really lovely things about the football club. He's, in, he's clearly enjoying himself. We sort of related that back to, to Marco Silva's time at the football club. Yeah. And I sort of asked everybody, does anyone remember what his assistant's name was? And yeah. nobody, nobody really knew because it, it felt as though him and his, his coaching staff tried to be quite sheltered and yeah. tried to keep themselves away from all that. And then ultimately when things did go wrong, people didn't really have that affinity with him and that connection with him because I don't know whether yeah. it's he didn't want to portray himself and let people, the fans get to know him or his coaching staff or the club just didn't do it. 
But one way or another, he, he just felt like a fella stood on the sidelines and not someone yeah. who we could relate to. I think that was down to Marco himself uh, because, you know, I met him quite a few times and he was a, a very lovely, engaging guy. But he was very, very guarded. Um, there was one lengthy sit-down that Brian Dugan, who was then the media officer at the club, had arranged for me. And as ever nowadays, it was controlled. You know, he sat in on the interview and had to listen to everything I was asking. Uh, but you know, he wasn't trying to interrupt or trying to steer me in a certain direction. So it was, in effect, you know, so uh, a general, you know, sort of informal conversation. And I had about forty-five minutes with him, and you know, he, he was good value. But every time I tried to steer him into something a little bit more intimate, he didn't want to know. You know, even to the point where, where are you living? You know, you're bumping into Evertonians when you're walking around. Wouldn't tell me. But didn't want anybody yeah. to know anything about you know the inner workings of his life, which is fine. You know, so I understand how pressurised football management is, and how managers maybe need to put a little bit of a drawbridge up. And Ronald Koeman insisted on living in Cheshire, so he wouldn't be subjected to that kind of um, you know sort of that scrutiny. Yeah. But you contrast that to Carlo. He was like going down to Bootlestand shopping centre. He was, uh, you know, so bumping into fans on the, on the waterfronts and mixing with them. It's almost as if he's looked at his predecessors and thought, well, hang on, you know, so the fans didn't appreciate that. They weren't happy with that. And he's not willing to make the same mistakes. You know, he's actually putting himself out there. He's, you know, basically treating himself, you know, as a fan, you know, so mixing with the supporters. And that does make a big difference. Like you say, people can relate to them a little bit more. And when things aren't going quite so well, and let's face it, Everton's a project that needs rebuilding, you know, so we need, uh, you know, so a lot of you know, work going on there. You know, so people are a bit prepared to be a bit more patient because they see a man that actually shares the same values and shares the same yeah. sort of feelings that they have. So, yeah, very clever lad, uh, you know, Carlo. He is actually, you know, so as you'd imagine, the man who's had the career he's had doesn't come by accident, you know, so he does it maybe because he's a very, very shrewd operator. Uh, but yeah, it definitely works 100%. Um, just before we wrap up, Dave, I wanted to speak about something else uh, with you as well. Um, I know you're massively into your boxing. Um, <laughs> and I just, I just want to say, have you seen the videos of Mike Tyson doing the rounds? Back in no, training I again? Oh, I saw something on, uh, on Twitter this morning saying, oh, Boxing News uh, sent something out saying uh, the worst aspect of nostalgia now is the possibility of Tyson coming back. And I, I just dismissed it. I just, I'm, I'll, look, I'll look at that later. Uh, well, that's genuinely a tale doing the rounds that he might be making a comeback of there's, sorts. There's been some oh. videos. There's been some videos of him doing training, and, and, and he looks very sharp in them. But I suppose the, these oh. videos of boxes, you know, sometimes it, you know they're a bit speeded yeah. up and stuff like that when they're training. They're obviously not getting hit back or anything like that. But I think yeah. he, he put on one of his social media things a hint of a, of a comeback or something like that. Uh, but the man's, you know, 52 oh. years old now. Um, I just wanted to see if you, if you had any <laughs> had any thoughts on it. But it, you well, just. Well, it's exactly the same as the, the thoughts I had with Nigel Benn, you know, so it was making his comeback, you know, sort of last year. It, it's tragic. You know, it's, I suppose you can look at the fact that it was a George Foreman won the world heavyweight title at 46 and you mm. saw, you know, Tommy Hearns kept going to a ripe old age. Um, but, you know, for, boxing is the most brutally unforgiving sport, you know, sort of imaginable out there. It's dangerous. Um, I, I sat down having this conversation with Tony Bellew, uh, you know, many times, you know, so towards the end of his career. Um, you know, I, I feared for him against David Hay. I really did, and showed you what I know about boxing. <laughs> um, but no, I genuinely did. Because heavyweights, you know, it just takes one punch, and you know, it's not just you know, so your fight ended, your life could be ended, and you know, he totally got got the uh, you know the, the the risks inherent in it, but the, the the rewards outweighed that. And having beaten David Hay once, I thought, Greg, that's it. You know, you can now you know so call it a day as a heavyweight. But he saw the opportunity to make a lot more money in the re rematch. And I said to him, you know, why, why do you want to do this? You know, you've got a wife, you've got kids, you've made money. 
And it's, it's a drug sometimes, boxing. It gets into you mm. and it's very, very difficult to get away from it. And, you know, so people just keep boxing far more than they should do. Muhammad Ali, my all-time idol, you know, so in any sport, went on far longer than he ever should have done. And it was, it was tragic what happened to him, you know, so right in the end, you know, the, the Larry Holmes fight with that horrible little tinny bell in the Bahamas. Mm. You know, so legends don't know when to say no. And Mike Tyson is a legend, you know, so I think... Ultimately, it claims to be like the greatest boxer of all time. You know, so we're exposed you know, when Buster Douglas stood up to him and then, you know, when people realized that he was fallible. Yeah. And, you know, so he, if you did confront, you know, so, you know, the monster head on, you know, so you, you could possibly, you know, so get out of there, you know, so with some kind of, you know, something intact. But for three or four years, you know, he was an absolute force of nature. And uh, I remember the night he, he lost to James Buster Douglas and it was in Japan, it was in the wee small hours at four o'clock and I hadn't stayed up to watch it. And uh, a mate came around, you know, so to the house, oh, have you heard? So Tyson has lost. I refuse to believe it. No, he's lost. Yeah, well, what, what did he lose? And thinking it might have been a flash knockout in the first round, 10th mm. round knockout. And as soon as I heard 10th round, I thought, impossible, impossible. Tyson can't <laughs> 10th rounds. And so that was what he was like, you know, so the aura that surrounded the man back then that was dented by that defeat and by the subsequent experiences that he had. And it's never going to come back now. So I don't know what he thinks yeah. he can possibly achieve by coming back. It'll be a circus show. It'll be, it'll be a freak show. And I'd rather not see it, to be honest. Um, yeah. I didn't want to see Nigel Ben get back into a ring again. And I certainly don't want to see Mike Tyson get back in. Yeah, there's been talk about a few boxers maybe coming back during all this, you know, the, the lockdown and stuff like that. And you just wonder with financial constraints and with them being home and doing home training and that sort of thing and being in that bubble that we might see a, a few of that when a few, a few of that sort of come back when when this all ends and like you said it's it's just a bit horrible isn't it just to see yeah. someone someone like that go go through it again well you, you've got memories you know so you, you remember you know so how these people were uh, funny enough i got a message yesterday on uh on, on facebook messenger from a fellow called glenn feldman who was, um, well, he still is a very, very highly respected judge. Uh, he, he's done the Fury Wilder fights. He's done like, okay. you know, all, all, he's done Mayweather, God knows how many times. You know, so a really regarded uh, you know, judge. But I got to know him when he did uh, Shane Erie, Andy Holligan, uh, way back in the day when he did uh, The Mark in the Park in 96, I think it was. <laughs> and that was an absolutely incredible contest. You know, so six rounds of absolute intensity. You know, akin with Hagler Hearns, really, it was. It was yeah. absolutely wonderful. And, doesn't quite get the profile it deserves uh, because it was a domestic fight, you know, effectively rather than an international fight. I remember the BBC at the time, you know, so their radio guys, John Rawlings, was it, uh, basically screaming down the phone to his bosses, please don't undersell this. This is an incredible fight. And at the end of the other contest, Glenn Feldman turned round to where the press bench was and he just, I won't do the American accent because I can't, but you know, <laughs> he, he, just, he just drawled, that is the greatest fight I've ever seen. Anyway, so I used that in my piece and he read it and he was quite pleased about it and I uh, just kept in touch. So sadly, the, uh, the, the upshot is he became a Liverpool fan <laughs> yeah. as a result of his visit to uh, to <laughs> follows Liverpool Football Club, but he keeps in touch and, uh, you know, does all these great fights. But, yeah, you know, you have memories of these, these fights and these fighters, you know, as they were. I mean, one of the greatest nights of Goodison will be Tony Bell. You yeah. the world title against Ilunga Makabu. That was an incredible night, helped by the fact that the weather was perfect. Everything about it was great. But, you know, another little, you know, so ticking, you know, so Goodison's, you know, so long and storied history. But these are memories and, you know, Memories can be sullied and can be spoiled by things that happen subsequently. Uh, I'd rather nothing happen to sully the memory of Mike Tyson. He's got enough skeletons in his closet without taking yeah. any more to it. 
yeah, but that's a brilliant note to finish on. Uh, Dave, we'll wrap it up there. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Uh, half an hour has absolutely flown by. Um, Enjoyed it. be great to get you back on to chat about your book when that inevitably gets going again. Uh, we'll okay, go into yeah. a bit more detail yeah. on that. In the meantime, uh, thanks to everybody for watching this. Um, if you enjoyed this video, go back and watch the rest of the ones we've done. Uh, yesterday spoke to uh, former England international um, Sue Smith, who a lot of people think is a red. Did you know she was a blue, Dave? No, I watched that yesterday, actually. No, I had no idea. You've educated me there. It was very good, though. Yeah, I, I urge people to watch that one as well. She said to me after we recorded that people come up to her in the supermarket and they go and start talking about Liverpool thinking she's a red. She's like, no, I'm a blue. I'm a blue. So, <laughs> well, what a cross to bear, that is. <laughs> yeah, I spoke to Kevin Ratcliffe last week as well. Yeah. Uh, late, one more video coming up this week on Friday. I speak to Andy Burnham, uh, Manchester Mayor, a big Evertonian as well. So watch out for that tomorrow. Uh, but thanks very much to Dave, uh, and I'll speak to you soon. Progressive presents Forced Metaphors about bundling your home auto and other vehicles. Any sports fan knows defense wins championships. Your championship is your boat, motorcycle, RV, or ATV. And your best defense is the round-the-clock protection offered by Progressive, which is like having a goalie, a seven-foot shot-blocking specialist, and a linebacker all wrapped into one. Which, to circle back, means you're going to win the championship. Because, you know, defense. Forced Metaphors. Presented by Progressive. Bundle and protect today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discount not available in all states or situations. Sports Social Podcast Network.